0: This podcast is sponsored by Merion Global Investors, bringing together the art and science of investing. Hello and welcome to The Spectator podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman. Somehow it has already been two years into a Trump presidency and America is facing midterm elections. Will Democrats win in a landslide? We also delve a little deeper into the political fault lines behind the Jamal Khashoggi story. Is Turkey taking advantage of his death? And last, is the use of wild animals in circuses really the great injustice that campaigners say it is? First, America is going to the polls again. This November, the House of Representatives and a third of the Senate are facing re-election in the midterms. Some predict that the Democrats will win in a landslide and retake control of the currently Republican Congress. But Freddie Gray, editor of Spectator USA, writes in this week's cover piece that the Democrats aren't in for such an easy ride. The Brett Kavanaugh case has incensed the American right, and Democrats still haven't learned to appeal to the country's working class. Freddie joins me now together with Leslie Vinjamuri, head of the US and the Americas programme at Chatham House. So Freddie, you're in Washington at the moment. Let's just start with the explosive devices that have been sent to various prominent figures. What's the mood like where you are?
1: Well, very selfishly, I mean, I think I can make this joke because nobody's hurt and nobody has died. Very selfishly, as soon as I'd written a piece saying that the Democrats are becoming the sort of nastier force in American politics, some presumably right-wing lunatic sends lots of bombs to Trump opponents. I think the mood here is is febrile. It's always it's always quite febrile, particularly in the run up to an election. And this sort of thing just makes it a little bit more excited. What was quite sort of typical was how it descended into partisan fighting before everyone had said agreed that it was a terrible thing.
0: Leslie, do you recognize that account of the sort of partisan sniping? over quite serious incidents.
2: Yeah, I think we've seen this with so many things. If you think about the Russia investigations, they've also been read very much through a partisan lens. So yes, it's amplified by the news media, which is very much divided into echo chambers. And when anything happens where it's being interpreted and interpreted from the top along, along partisan lines, the president's really leading much of this right now. And Freddie argues in his piece that the Democrats are still sneering at American working
0: class voters for their perceived racism or sexism. Have they not learned their lesson from Trump's 2016 victory yet? Then?
2: Yeah, I think if you listen carefully to the conversation that's taking place amongst Democrats, there is a real uh, recognition that Trump has tapped into something that's very serious, very real, that there are a number of Americans who feel like they've lost out from globalization, who rightly note that the wages have been stagnant since around 1993 uh, for the middle class. But, but then the question is whether the Democrats are actually effectively channeling that into an increased voter base and and drawing on what used to be, you know, very critical to the party, which is that that blue-collar working base, the unions. And so far, it doesn't look like that's, that's actually happening. Freddie, is this the only challenge that the Democrats face in the run-up to the midterms?
1: It's clearly the main one. I, I agree that they're trying to shift the rhetoric a bit and trying to be a more... A sort of a party that listens more and, and that sort of thing. But the problem is, is they're, they're torn between where they probably should go to win elections and what their base wants. And their base wants to be the Trump resistance to do all the kind of politics that puts off huge parts of middle America. And so it is the case that Americans are not ready for
0: something a little different yet. And that actually being the Trump resistance, as you put it, is not going to appeal.
1: Well, I don't know, actually, because I think, I think the, the blue wave that everybody has been anticipating for a long time, Well, I think it's not going to be the wave that everyone thought it would be, I do think it's significant. There is, there is a very strong, very mobilised, increasingly hard left force in American politics. And I think Republicans underestimate that at their peril. I mean, just like the Tories underestimated Corbynism at their peril.
3: Leslie,
0: what do you think is going to happen in the midterms?
2: Well, there is this question about whether the blue wave will materialize. What we do know is that the midterm elections really are a referendum on the President, that people are voting as much, probably more with that in mind than they are with local issues that the the issues that Americans are voting on, health care, uh, the Supreme Court, immigration, the economy actually ranks fourth. Um, but that really, when they turn out, they're thinking very much about their attitudes and their opinions of the American president. So, that's the first question. The second question is whether they turn out, and of course, this is the thing that the polls have a very difficult time predicting: whether or not we see a blue wave has as much to do with whether uh, with how people feel as it does to do with whether they actually turn out and and deliver that vote on the day, and, the, and for those uh, places where you can vote in advance, beginning already. Freddie, what are your predictions?
1: I think the blue wave probably would have happened had it not been for this extraordinary Kavanaugh business, which was a kind of culture war that mobilized both bases massively. But actually, it seems the polls suggest that it's been better for, for the Republican Party. The, the fight over to nominate Brett Kavanaugh ended up benefiting the, the, the Republican Party. And that, In fact, it, uh, there was an interesting thing this week about how early voter turnout in some key states, shows Republican turnout is very high. So they've managed to, often in midterms, the problem for the incumbent party is getting their own vote out. Democrats have managed to find a way of actually doing that, which is spectacular. I think, I mean, it leads to my theory that they're sort of a party with a death wish. What do you mean by that? Well, in that every time they're sort of in a good position, they'll do something spectacularly wrong to blow it up, and it and it always plays into Trump's hands. And I mean, even though I think Trump is a lot smarter than a lot of people give him credit for, there's no way he could have predicted just quite how mad the American left would go over the Brett Kavanaugh nomination and how much that would help change the narrative in his favour. Because in the run up to the Kavanaugh story, Trump was actually on a very bad run, and when it was showing in the polls. It went under 40% in approval rating before September, which is when it really kicked off in earnest.
0: A lot of our listeners based in the UK will be surprised by the fact that the Republicans have benefited from this route. Freddie, can you explain why that is? Is is it a sort of persecution complex that is being fed into by the sense that the, the Democrats were pursuing this quite so vigorously?
1: I think there was quite a large, a wide sense in America that uh, the smear campaign against Brett Kavanaugh was a bit beyond the pale. I think people were quite shocked at how the Democrat Party sort of threw everything into what amounted to quite quite a flimsy allegation against him. And I think what the midterm polls suggest is that the the innocent until proven guilty base, if there is such a thing, is more powerful as an electoral force than the believe-all-women base. I think the Democrats very disastrously managed to motivate a large number of Republican-leaning people or people who don't like Trump but would normally vote Republican to get out and vote. And it it was a kind of classic case of shooting themselves in the foot.
0: Leslie, do you think that the Democrats have... Failed to understand the distinction that Freddie makes of innocent until proven guilty and believe all women, and actually that in deciding to go for believe all women, they are demeaning themselves as a party unwittingly.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I have to say, I think it's it's a it's not a very clear, it's not it's not an accurate interpretation of of what actually happened. I mean, the the key thing here is that. Even prior to Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court has been the most important policy issue for Republican voters. This is the thing that they wanted Donald Trump to deliver on. So the fact that he has successfully seen two conservative Supreme Court justices confirmed has been very important and would always have been very important to the Republican voter. And the likelihood that there will be more vacancies on the court, of course, drives that vote. Now, winning is something that I think mobilizes people, especially in a hearing that was so toxic, that got so much public attention. But I don't think it's accurate to suggest either that it doesn't also mobilize Democratic voters. I think it absolutely is leading to increased mobilization, certainly by women in the Democratic Party and more generally. Um, But the Democrats didn't go for this, right? This was something that went to a hearing because there was a credible allegation that actually – even the people on the Judiciary Committee all agreed was very credible. The question was then what to do. And that was, and that was managed very carefully um, by that committee. Freddie, what do you make of that?
1: I think Leslie's absolutely right about winning. I mean, the, the Supreme Court is tremendously important to conservative voters. And it enables them to think that Trump, despite all his sort of personal flaws, is actually delivering for America. It's delivering for those of voters. And so, I mean, if the base thinks that he's delivering for them, um, they will get out and vote because they feel like they're winning, as as Leslie says.
2: I mean, there there are the optics. First of all, I mean, th- th- there's two things here. One is that Donald Trump delivered a very significant tax cut and he's to wealthy Americans and to corporate America in particular. And he's delivered a lot of deregulation. So a lot of people that will be opposed to him and are opposed to him, I think, in terms of his style of governing and in terms of n- any number of his social policies are not um, likely to stand up against him in this moment because they are economically benefiting and the American economy is very strong. What's not clear is whether he's delivering to that base, and it doesn't seem that he is. It doesn't seem that those... Economic benefits are trickling down. Uh, we've had a lot of critiques of trickle-down economics. That's not new. Um, but whether or not that actually leads to dissatisfaction and to people voting against him, that is something that isn't isn't clear and doesn't seem to be taking place yet.
1: I think it's true that in Trump country, states like um, Michigan and Pennsylvania, states that he surprised everyone by winning in 2016, uh, you're seeing a drift back towards the Democrats, and it might be down to the tax cut that really. Um, spoke to the idea that Trump is uh, just in it for him and his rich cronies, and that the poor people who voted for Trump are going to get screwed over again. But I do think Trump is canny enough to know that uh, this is this is a problem for him. And that's why at his rallies recently, he's been talking about stressing the uh, 10% tax cut he's going to give to lower middle income families. And um, that's very shrewd politics. We see it again and again with Trump. Every time we think he's a sort of moron idiot who's blundering in, in from, from crisis to the next crisis. He's actually saying quite astute things, albeit in a way that people find moronic. And the other thing that he does brilliantly is, is change the narrative. He always changes narrative. And every time the Democrats um, seem to have a, a point in which they're winning, Trump will spectacularly blow up what the media is talking about and what everyone talks about on social media and um, change the conversation. And the one thing he's he's his sort of go-to uh, topic changer, as it were, is he'll go to immigration. That's what he's been doing in recent days. He goes very hard on immigration, and um, the political class and the media go into a meltdown about it. But it seems to work for him with a lot of voters.
2: Well, it's interesting, right? The number one issue right now that's driving Americans at the polls is health care, not immigration. Uh, and he lost on health care. Remember, what he what this president wanted to do was he, he wanted to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare. He, he failed to do that. And now the debate has descended into whether or not the president will try to repeal those uh, provisions that protect Americans who have what we call pre-existing conditions, things like cancer or pregnancy. And the Republicans are having to defend themselves, right? They're having to make it clear that they won't take away pre-existing uh, protection for those with pre-existing conditions. So it's really boiled down to a debate that doesn't reflect um, Trump's initial agenda.
1: Again, I agree that healthcare is a big negative for Trump. And it's it's something that he hasn't he hasn't succeeded on. But th- but these are sort of democratic talking points that Leslie's saying. And every time uh, the Democrats try and sort of ram home those points, they end up getting distracted because Trump is this master of, of blowing up uh, the national conversation. And with a healthy economy, uh, Medicare doesn't seem to be quite as potent uh, an issue as it was under Obama. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not important, but it's still it, it's maybe not got quite the cut through as the, the vote winning issue that it certainly was for Trump in 2016. Yeah.
2: Well, except that Medicaid is a very potent issue for his base, right? That part of medical provision that goes to people from a very low income bracket in America, which is has been core to his rallies, to his uh, to his rhetoric, and that he's at various points in time wanted to uh, do away with. He certainly didn't start out that way, but at different points in time, he's he's looked like he was going to take an axe to that. So you're, you're right; he's very effective at shifting the narrative. Um, but the other interesting thing right now in the elections is that you know on, in in many uh, places people are uh, Republican candidates are being careful not to make this election about Trump, right? They're trying to make it anti-Pelosi, but not pro-Trump because Trump doesn't play well in all districts. So, despite the fact that he's he's careful at shifting the narrative, there's still plenty of places that. Um, are lukewarm at best. Doesn't mean to say they support the Democrats, but they're also not tremendously supportive of the president. Last
0: word, Freddie.
1: It's certainly true that Trump doesn't play well well in all districts. Uh, and, and I think what's very interesting for a lot of Republican candidates is, is, is the sort of delicate balancing act they have to pull between being Trumpy and not too Trumpy. And, and a lot of them really struggle with it. And, and that's a big problem for the Republican Party is that Trump is able to be Trump, but a lot of Republicans don't really know how Trump they should be.
0: Thanks, Freddie and Leslie.
4: Hello, I am Lara Prendergast, Spectator Life's food and drink editor. And I'm Olivia Potts, Spectator Life's vintage chef. Join us for a new podcast from Spectator Radio, Table Talk. Where we chat to guests ranging from Prue Leith to Briony Gordon about their life through food.
5: It's available from next week, just search for Spectator Radio on the iTunes store.
0: We still don't know all the facts in the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, but what little we do know has steadily been released by the Turkish authorities, who even claim that they have video and audio evidence of the execution. Hannah Lucinda-Smith digs a little deeper at Turkey's interests in the affair in this week's magazine. She argues that while the Saudis are rightly blamed for Khashoggi's death, Turkey's President Erdogan has also been taking advantage of the opportunity to attack Saudi Arabia, exposing a power struggle in the region between the Muslim Brotherhood and Saudi Arabia. She joins me now from Istanbul, together with Azam Tamimi, friend of Jamal Khashoggi and member of the Muslim Brotherhood. So, Hannah, you write that the Khashoggi case is as much about Turkey as it is about Saudi Arabia. What do you mean by that?
4: OK, well, I think when we look at President Erdogan's reaction to the Khashoggi case, his first kind of full statement came on Tuesday when he spoke to his parliamentary party. Um, and he outlined the facts of the case as he understands them. But he also used it as a way to quite clearly put pressure on Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. He's a man who he's had a very strained relationship with ever since Crown Prince kind of rose to prominence in, in Saudi Arabia. But alongside that, President Erdogan also tried to use, use the Khashoggi case as a way to present himself as some kind of you know, voice of the free press. He said, Jamal Khashoggi was a world-renowned journalist, so we have an international responsibility on behalf of the international community to be a representative of the conscience of humanity. Now, this comes as Erdogan is launching his own crackdown on... On journalists in Turkey, there are—it's the biggest jailer of journalists in the world. There are dozens of journalists behind bars, and, and you know what's quite interesting is that he chooses the case of Jamal Khashoggi in particular to to present himself as the voice of a free press. Now that is as much to do with Erdogan's own ambitions in the region, his own ambitions to be a leader of Muslims beyond Turkey's borders, and Jamal Khashoggi's own, own world view, which fits very, very close with President Erdogan's, as it is to do with with the killing of a journalist.
0: Azam, do you recognise that description of the way that Erdogan is behaving?
6: Not really, not at all. And I don't see in what other way he could have reacted. Uh, this is not just about freedom of speech. This is about a most vicious, most brutal crime that was perpetrated in Istanbul. And therefore, the Turkish authorities have a responsibility to find out who is behind it. And this came very clear in his address when he asked the Saudis to answer a very simple question. Who gave the mandate to those 18 suspects, 15 of whom flew or were flown in from Riyadh, some of whom are the closest personal guards of Mohammed bin Salman. It's inconceivable that this could have happened without not only mandate, but explicit instructions from right in the top of Saudi authority.
0: Hannah, in your piece you look at the fault line between the Muslim Brotherhood and the Saudi-led Middle East. Can you just explain a little bit more about that to our listeners who are probably a little bit confused about it?
4: Well, I mean, since the since the outbreak of the Arab Spring in in late 2010, early 11, the Muslim Brotherhood has been at the forefront of the movements against the old secular dictators across the Middle East, in Egypt, in Libya, in Tunisia, and lately in Syria as well. And Erdogan is very much a subscriber to to the Muslim Brotherhood way of seeing the world, of seeing Islam, of the way of seeing political Islam. He he sees it as a model for the Middle East, for the new Middle East in, in the wake of the Arab Spring. It's a model that he supports. And, and obviously for Saudi Arabia, they have a very different view of the Muslim Brotherhood. They view it as a terrorist organisation. They are very firmly against it. So this is what I mean when I talk about the fault line between Saudi Arabia and Turkey in the Middle East.
0: This is quite tricky, isn't it, for Britain? Because we see Saudi Arabia obviously as a very important ally, but we do so also with Turkey.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Turkey and Britain in the wake of the 2016 coup attempt in Turkey have grown increasingly close you know, this is a relationship of mutual benefits on the Turkish side they see Britain as a strong ally because Britain was the first European country to send a minister to Turkey after that coup attempt it's something I still hear figures within the Turkish government talking about today you know they were very very angry that as they saw it Europe and the US didn't react quickly enough you know sending ministers sending condolences after that really violent coup attempt in July 2016 And then from the British side, clearly we've got Brexit coming up in March next year and Britain is looking for trade partners outside the EU. We've already got a very established trade relationship with Turkey and that's something they want to make stronger. But then on the other side, Saudi Arabia is also an ally of the UK, both in terms of defence deals and also in terms of security. You know, the, the reason that is always given when people question Britain's relationship with Saudi Arabia is we're told that it's vital in terms of security, that you know, that relationship ensures that there aren't more terror attacks on our streets.
0: Azam, do you see Turkey as being the new focal point of power in the Middle East?
6: It has the potential, but the reason for this is that Turkey accommodated itself with the changes in the region. I mean, prior to the Arab Spring, Turkey had a policy of establishing strong relations with the surrounding countries, with the existing regimes. They had brilliant ties with Egypt, with Libya, with Syria, the countries that witnessed the Arab revolutions. But then when the Arab revolutions erupted, and those were revolutions that nobody really or, uh, organized or planned, they were spontaneous bursts in the face of despotism, Turkey recognized that these revolutions were legitimate and uh, sided by them. It's not the issue of the Muslim Brotherhood, although, of course, uh, it is true that the Muslim Brotherhood were pushed to the forefront They did not start the Arab revolutions. They did not plan them. Many of their leaders were in prison when the revolution started. But because maybe it's the most well-organized movement in the region with a long history of struggle, a high level of credibility in the eyes of the masses, they were pushed to the forefront to lead the change. And that's why today they are paying the price. There are today no less than 40,000 prisoners in Egypt, most of whom are members of the Muslim Brotherhood and they are behind bars because they are the defenders of democracy.
0: And what would you expect the response of Britain to be? So far it's really been about words, so Theresa May and Jeremy Hunt have both condemned in the strongest terms and there's also been talk of barring the suspects from coming to Britain, but would you like to see more action?
6: Well, Saudi Arabia is a very important country for Britain and will always be a very important country for the West in general but this crime is a very dangerous precedent and it has also indications i mean we've seen a report for instance by the german intelligence in 2015 talking about the a sort of a psychoanalysis of Mohammed bin salman the crown prince this incident if it is proven and i i believe myself i suspect that it is true that he gave the orders that Mohammed bin salman is a very dangerous man to be in charge of saudi arabia and therefore the world would want to see him gone. We're not talking here about Saudi Arabia being gone. We're talking about one person who is a madman, who thinks he can get away with whatever he wants, with whatever he he does. And that's dangerous. And I, I think that's why the European Union today, I think, voted in a in a resolution calling for an independent inquiry because this is a very serious precedent.
0: Now, Azam, Jamal Khashoggi was your friend, and please do accept our condolences for your loss. Why do you think he was targeted?
6: I think for two reasons, primarily. First, Jamal never considered himself to be an opponent of the regime. He refused to be counted as a member of the opposition. Even when he came here to London, he didn't meet with the opposition, or even in America or anywhere else. He believed he was the son of the establishment. He worked with the royal family for many years. But he started becoming alarmed since Mohammed bin Salman took over about some of the policies adopted by him. Now, it's the Saudis who initiated the rift when they banned him in the autumn of 2016 from any media appearance, not only in Saudi Arabia, but even outside Saudi Arabia. Then a year later, A group of intellectuals, including one of his closest friends, Issam al-Zamel, who is a world-renowned economist, were arrested and sent behind bars. And Jamal knew that this was the end of it. But the second reason is that he managed to undo what Mohammed bin Salman was paying millions of pounds or dollars in London and in Washington to lobby groups to create an image of himself as a liberal as a modernist, as a reformist. In one column in the Washington Post, Jamal Khashoggi was telling the other side of the story, exposing Mohammed bin Salman for what he is. And I think that, that annoyed the man.
0: Thanks, Hannah and Azam.
1: Hello, I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I present the weekly books podcast at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there, from Charlotte Rampling to Daniel Dennett, all the way past to Michael Morpurgo. I very much hope you'll give us a try. Just search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store. Last, the government
0: banned the use of wild animals in circuses earlier this year. But is the British use of animals really the great injustice that animal rights campaigners say it is? Ringmaster dear Burkett says not in this week's magazine. She points out that there are only 19 animals left in British circuses and what's more, none of them are the big cats or elephants that we envisage. Why aren't campaigners going after more pervasive abuse like the Grand National or laws that allow wild animals to be kept as pets? To discuss this, I'm joined by Tim Phillips from Animal Defenders International and Vanessa Toolman, historian and founder of the National Fairground and Circus Archive. So Tim, in our magazine piece this week, your organisation is described as being militant. Do you agree with that? And what do you actually get up to?
5: Well, I wouldn't agree with that description. I think we represent the public on this issue. What we do is we go undercover, we gather evidence, we put together economic data, scientific data, we present that to governments. We've prosecuted more circuses than, than anybody else in, in the UK. We've also assist with governments enforcing bans so that the animals can go to a different life once that they're passed. So I think that there's over 40 prohibitions on... Animals in circuses around the world in a multitude of different countries, differently socioeconomically, different culturally, shows that there is a distaste of this activity and our data and our evidence is trusted and proven.
0: Vanessa, tell us a little bit about the history of animals in circuses. Have they always been an integral part of the performance or are they a more
3: recent addition? So circus starts with a horse. So wild animals were not part of animal circus history until 1830s, late 1830s when Van Amberg brought over his lion taming act from America and presented it to Queen Victoria at Astley's Amphitheater in London. So that's the first time you get the wild on the animal menagerie tradition into circus in the 1830s, 70 years after circus was born. So to me, circus essentially starts with a horse and... I'm interested to know if the organisation also is interested in trying to ban horses in circus. Tim,
5: I would say actually, the history of the circus goes back much much further than that. The human acts and and the bits which are the heart of the circus, the travelling players, and all of those things are really rooted in our our culture and history. You're quite right in saying that the wild animals were a very recent addition. They're, they're not really a tradition for it, and the horses and so on are not that historically involved in in such travelling shows either. So would you want to ban them? Yes, we we do oppose the use of horses in travelling circuses. The, The problem with animal circuses is that no other animals live in temporary accommodation for almost their entire year. That's the bit that you can't fix it's different from zoos it's different from sanctuaries these animals are packed up carted loaded now it's just scientific fact that it's stressful for animals including horses to be constantly travelling and so on what i have an
3: issue with is that there doesn't seem to be a a clarity of understanding about animals or domestic animals or wild animals for example you know 2000 pet owners were prosecuted last year but you don't have a ban on people having pets so I I applaud people who want to stop cruelty towards animals, but I think circus has been a soft target for many years. And other industries like greyhound racing, where there's plenty of horror stories and as much as there is in all aspects. I think you can't take one particular case or one instance and damn a whole industry.
0: It sounds to me, Vanessa, as though you actually think that there's not that much abuse of animals in, or the remaining wild animals in circuses actually have, what could we even say, they have a good life?
3: Well, I just think for the amount of money we've been spending... You know, in the campaign, there was a fox, three camels, three raccoons. There's also this issue about what is a wild and what is a domestic animal, isn't there? So I think the law itself is confusing. I've seen circuses banned in areas when they've got a horse circus. And the following week, they've had a dressage competition doing exactly the same thing they did in the circus thing. So I don't quite understand the rationale.
0: This is an interesting question, Tim. I, I do dressage and... I struggle to understand the difference, uh, un- apart from the travelling. Is that is that the only difference well, that, that actually? That's,
5: that's a key difference, and the fact that those animals are cooped up and so on. That that's what's demarked all of these pieces of legislation. It is travelling circus travelling? So it's it not what the they're control- being required to do. Well... It- That is a factor as well because there is overwhelming systematic abuse of these animals in in circuses. The video evidence is overwhelming. You do not see that level of violence against animals in zoos and there has never been that level of violence recorded in dressage or similar industries. This is an industry that turned a blind eye for years to the violence. These animals cooped up and so on. If this ban had been passed in 2006, you wouldn't have had that savage beating of Anne in that barn exposed in 2011. You wouldn't have had the Great British Circus where they were beating and systematically hitting those elephants in a tent in 2009 and tail-twisting them. This is an industry with a, a horrific past. And it's just such a weak argument to say there's other worse things. Yes, there's many bad things, but you don't not do something about something that can be acted on simply because there's other things. I mean, they argue that with almost Every piece of legislation, someone says that.
0: Vanessa, that could also be an argument for just better regulation and keeping wild animals in circuses, but with much more stringent conditions for their welfare.
3: I think that's always been the case. The problem is is that all the animal groups, in particular the uh, organisations in the last few years, use very emotive arguments, individual cases all the time. I mean, you know, you know the facts. 2,000 people were prosecuted last year for dog owners. 100 horses died in the RSPCA a year. So I I just think that we have to have a greater dialogue rather than just always going on to circuses. I mean, last year there was a horrendous example of a zoo in the north of England where over 100 animals had died over a period of three years, and they didn't get prosecuted until recently. And it was the local authority who prosecuted them, not any of the Animal Protection League's.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned the case of the South Lakes Zoo because the work that's been done since that case came to greater prominence has been not to ban zoos but to ensure better regulation of zoos so that that can't happen again.
5: One of the reasons we have poor standards in zoos and so on is because the circus industry has helped peg them back. How are they going to force greater standards in zoos? And there's no doubt I I spoke out in the media on that case when. You can keep lions and tigers on the back of a truck where you can have horses and other animals constantly being loaded, forced into trucks on a strict timetable. Those journeys with the circuses, they're not like horse racing and dressage journeys. We're talking about animals being shut in those transporters, horses, zebras, lions, elephants, for 23 hours, sometimes 48 hours before they get ready.
3: Firstly, we don't have lions and tigers and elephants working in circuses in the UK. My particular discussion is about the UK legislation that's happening. I also have to say, I'm not a fan of wild animals in circus, so I have no problem with the ban. What I do have an issue with is it's right for one group of people to be able to go and buy a tiger, take it through the streets of London, but a circus owner who looks after their animal or tries to exhibit it, whether it's a dog or a cat or a cow, has got different types of legislation. I have an issue that there's a complication in the law and that spending huge amounts of money on trying to ban 17 animals, which is about a cost of a million pounds an animal, better use of that time and money could have been spent on looking at the whole issue of animals and legislation. That's my problem.
0: Vanessa and Tim, thanks very much. And that's all for this week. If you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe, rate and review on the iTunes store. We would love to hear from you. And just a reminder that if you'd only like to hear the Spectator podcast, you can find its new home when you search Spectator podcast on the iTunes store. And do pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in the podcast, as well as Tony Abbott on Checkers, Lara Prendergast on dressing up for Halloween, and me, Isabel Hardman, on wildlife photographers behaving badly. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. This podcast is sponsored by Merion Global Investors, bringing together the art and science of investing.